I would say open your Bible to Genesis. We're going to start a Bible study in Genesis, but we're really not going to start in Genesis. Not just yet. Uh, We're going to get there. I am excited about this. We are beginning a consideration of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 this morning. Um, We're going to see some exciting things. In Genesis 1, God declares himself as existing and as the creator. He doesn't explain who he is yet. He just declares that's who he is. That's what he did. Um, We're going to read about six days of creation greatly attacked in our world in our day. Uh, Adam and Eve were created, Adam first and then Eve. We remember the temptation and the fall, all very literal events, the cost of disobedience and the curse uh, on the ground, on the serpent, on the woman, on man, the first murder in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to reference that today. We're going to see evil and demonic influence in Noah's day, so much so that God said that he was going to destroy the earth, and yet Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to learn about Noah's Ark. Our youth went to the Noah's Ark experience in Creation Science Museum this last summer, uh, and so they're already aware of some things that happened there. We're going to learn about Noah's Ark and God delivering him and his family, the great flood, the repopulation of the earth and the nations. We're going to see the Tower of Babel, uh, trace it all the way up to Abram, who became Abraham's line. Uh, Terah, his father, uh, is the last mention, and Abraham is where it begins in Genesis chapter 12. And I don't remember how many years ago, probably four or five years ago now, um, we looked at Abraham's life, and those messages are available. What we're going to do, though, is Genesis 1 through 11. It is critical Genesis 1 through 11 is critical for a biblical worldview. And because of that, it is under constant attack. Um, Genesis 1 through 11 is uh, just constantly being attacked. I thought it would be interesting and profitable this morning for us to spend some time looking at what Jesus said and thought about Genesis 1 through 11. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, after all, we're followers of Jesus. Whatever he thought and said, that's what we want to think and do as well. And so we're going we're gonna to jump around in different places in the Gospels and see where he either referenced completely, or excuse me, where he either cited or referenced different things that happened in those chapters. Um, we're followers of him. In order to follow him, we need to understand what he thought, what he said. That's important to him. Following him is so much more. I want you to hear this, and we say it all the time, but it is so much more than simply being able to say, when I die, I get to go to heaven. That's a benefit, but it is so much more than that. And actually, one of the passages that he talks about this morning uh, that we're going to look at addresses that very issue that it's so much more than that. Um, We're going to see that in one of the passages he references in Genesis. We are as followers of Christ being conformed to his image. And I was just thinking through that last song that we were singing, and it talks about everyone overcome. And I'm thinking, you know, it probably ought to say believers overcome or followers of Christ overcome, because if we had 100 or 200 or 500 people that were singing that to communicate everyone is overcoming, well, it's it's for those who are followers of Christ, and we've got to be, be very, very careful. We're being conformed as followers of his to his image, which is sometimes a challenge. Think about it. Many of us have come to faith 
not being influenced by a godly biblical upbringing and the ways of our world are ingrained in us. I think about our kids these days and what they learn and, and, and the things that are being ingrained in them. And to become conformed to the image of Christ, they have to undo things and unthink things and unfollow things in order to follow who Jesus is. And so it's a challenge. It's normal in our spiritual journey that we come to the place of asking ourselves. Actually, I think it's the Lord pricking our heart to ask ourselves, who am I following here? Am I following Jesus Christ? Am I following Christianity in general? Am I following a particular denomination? Am I following my world? Who am I following here? And the right answer is one and only one, and it's Jesus Christ. We're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those raised in a Christian home have their own battles. Um, They might not have some of the significant influence of the world, though they might. just depends on who they are and how they've received that thing. Um, But they have their own battles as they're being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8 verse 29 says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And I go all the way back to Genesis, and I think that we were created in God's image. So we're created in God's image. It got marred and undone because of sin. We're reborn by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's conforming us to the image of his son. Um, after, And so it seems that as a follower of Christ, it would be wise to ask, how did Jesus view Genesis 1 through 11? What was his understanding of the creation account? After all, not only does he express his opinion about it, he was there. Um, he was there. Look at look in your Bible, and I want to encourage you this morning. This is going to be a little bit different. This isn't really a preachy message. It's going to be more of a Bible study. Open your Bible to John chapter 1. And we're going to be focused mostly in the Gospels, and so it will be within that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John area. Um, John chapter 1, Jesus was present at creation even though he hadn't become man yet. He still existed in eternity past and broke into our world for the very specific purpose of dying on the cross Becoming our Savior. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. That's a parallel passage to that Colossians 1 that we read just before the Lord's Supper of Him being Creator, Jesus Himself. In Him, verse 4, was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 9, speaking of Jesus, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, him creator, and the world did not know him. Jesus would later pray in the garden just prior to his arrest, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's talking about the glory that he had with the Father, the Son with the Father, before the world existed, even before creation. Um, Jesus is praying this. Jesus was there at creation when Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God, and then it continued. Jesus was already present. Um, He was already there, already had had communion with the Father. He had not become man yet, but he was already there. Colossians 1 and John 1 and Psalm 102 proclaim the Son as the agent of God who created. 
his opinion of Genesis 1 through 11 really matters. And so if there's anything that we can glean from the Gospels about what Jesus thought about Genesis 1 through 11, all of the attacks that come on the creation account of God would fail into insignificance because Jesus is the one who was there, the one who did it, and this is what he says about it. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. It shouldn't surprise us that the Genesis account has been under attack by so many for so long, and we could name names if we wanted to. The one um, who made man had been rejected by man apart from God's grace, and most do not know him. Scripture says, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it, Matthew chapter 7. If we, we as mankind can just simply explain away or just not believe, or intellectualize, or look scientifically and disprove creation and all of the things that happened at a flood and the repopulation of the earth. If we can disprove that, now all of a sudden I don't have to give an account to God because it's just a nice story. It's a nice way of thinking about how things came into existence and we just kind of need to continue to get better and better and better. The problem is God's Word. And the problem is what Jesus has to say about it. So it shouldn't surprise us that these, uh, that these chapters have been under so much attack. So what I want to do is I want us to recognize Jesus accepted and believed the Genesis account. And we know that because he quoted or referenced it at least eight different times. Some he quoted specifically. Sometimes it appears that he's referencing something that was mentioned in these chapters as well. And so this morning, as I mentioned, this is going to be more of a Bible study. Open your Bible and kind of follow along uh, as we as we move along. So open your Bible, the first one. This isn't, in any, this isn't chronological. I didn't do that. A little bit of a hodgepodge as far as an organization part of it, but Matthew chapter 19. I'm in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to look at what Jesus had to say there. They came to Jesus and asked him, testing him as they always did about marriage. Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Look at verse 2. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So divorce and remarriage is a, is a worthy subject, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're looking at what Jesus used this situation, and we're looking at how he, had, how he cited uh, the Genesis 1 through 11 account. Uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's a problem for our world these days. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And this passage continues on with the teaching of marriage and divorce. But what I wanted us to see is Jesus, in, in addressing the, te- the testing and the question that came to him, went back to the Genesis account and cited the passage back in Genesis. 
Genesis. And so what he does is he summarizes the creation of Adam and Eve. And then by quoting, uh, then he quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 where he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus used this passage as the authority of, Have you not read that from the beginning this is the way that it was supposed to be? Are there issues and problems that have caused some changes throughout life? Well, the way that we react to it, perhaps, but this is the way it was supposed to be. This is God's word. This is the Genesis account. And he uses that uh, passage in Genesis chapter 2 to, to drive that home in that problem in Matthew 19. Open your Bible, flip over a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 22. There is a couple of parallel passages. You don't have to look at those. Mark chapter 12, Luke chapter 20, if you want to listen and and, uh, get these later and read them on. Um, There were some who were trying to trick Jesus, always happened, by asking whether they should pay taxes or not. Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to pay Jackson County taxes? Okay, focus, Jerry. Um, So they were trying to trick Jesus by asking him whether they should pay taxes or not. And Jesus asked them for a coin and then asked whose image and inscription is on the coin. And Jesus responded, uh, Jesus' response referred them back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, where it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Jesus is acknowledging that man was made in God's image as it's stated in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and 27. What he's saying to those who are trying to trick him is pay your taxes, give to Caesar what's rendered unto Caesar. His image is on the coin, but your image is in the image of God. The very person that you are is God's image. And that's why every man on the planet ought to be honoring the Lord, because every one of us is made in his image. And can I add that all of the people that don't agree with Christianity in their morality, they were also made in the image of God? And so we need to be careful about the things that we say because the people that might not walk with us in some of the arenas that are modern day issues, they also were made in the image of God. And so we need to be careful there. So Jesus in this coin, in this coin image of Caesar took the opportunity to take them back to the beginning. In the beginning, this is the way it was. Man is created in God's image. Render unto Caesar whatever is Caesar's, but render unto God what's God's. You were created in his image. You're much more significant than a coin. Another, we find one page over, Matthew chapter 23, might be a page, a chapter over. Matthew chapter 23 or Luke chapter 11, Jesus spoke eight woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. We're not going to look at all eight of them. But in the last woe, he references Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 and verses 10, where Cain killed his brother Abel, and he treats it as a historical fact. It isn't just a story that was told to speak about how evil kind of comes into our world. It was a historical fact where a brother killed his brother, and he references that. Uh, It says, therefore you are witnesses, chapter 23, verse 31, therefore you're witnesses against yourself that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill, future tense. Some you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bershia whom you murdered between the temple of the altar. And so Jesus here references Abel's murder, the son son of Adam and Eve, very real people who had one son kill their other son, his own brother, a very real occurrence. And so Jesus is looking at this Genesis account, and we've seen it in chapter 2, and now we've seen it in chapter 4, and we'll see it in chapter 3. He's looking at it as a very authentic, very real, very historical um, text. Text. That was the case with Cain and his brother Abel. Look at Matthew 24. A parallel passage would be Luke 17. Jesus compares his second coming to the times of Noah's flood. That would be Genesis chapter 6, describing Noah's flood as a literal event in history. It wasn't something that, that maybe happened. It happened as a literal event. Or Jesus is lying. It's one or the other. Um, He sees it as a very literal happening. Jesus is teaching his disciples about his second coming, an event that verse 29 says is immediately after the tribulation of those days. And then he says in verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only, for as as were the days of Noah, so will be the, the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And I want to read one verse from chapter 21 of Luke just to give us a little bit of an encouragement as well where it says this take heed to yourselves same passage take heed to yourselves lest your heart be weighted down with carousing that would be living a debauchery uh, a lifestyle of debauchery or drunkenness I don't know that anyone in this place though you never know what somebody does behind closed doors would fall to that but we could certainly fall to the next one take heed to yourselves lest your hearts be weighted down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come on you unexpectedly oh my word how am I going to pay my rent how am I going to pay for my car payment I don't have a job what about this relation and the cares of this life just hold me down and pull me down and pull me down and so it isn't just the carousing and the drunkenness that causes me to not focus on the coming of the Lord which is going to be in comparison to the days of Noah but it can be just the cares of this life something that is amoral as well Jesus's comment Jesus's comments indicate he believed in a literal flood during the time of Noah because of the wickedness of that day and his second coming will be triggered by a similar circumstance. Look at look at Matthew 26. We're just going over the pages for a couple of these. Matthew 26 verse 52. Jesus was in the garden. You've read it. Um, he was he we read a, a passage of it this morning even. He was in the garden. He was be he was being 
betrayed by Judas. Judas kissed him. The crowd sent by the chief priests and the elders seized Jesus. Peter drew his sword, cut off the ear of one of them. John tells us it was Malchus. Luke tells us Jesus healed his ear. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew 26, verse 52 says this, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Where did that come from? And it's a possibility. It seems like he's echoing the words from Genesis chapter 9. Where did that come from? It sounds like an echo of Genesis chapter 9. The flood is over. God is making a a covenant with Noah. He tells him and his family to be fruitful and replenish the earth. Give them everything for... Now he's giving them everything for food. Before he had given them plants. Now they have everything for food. Though there are some stipulations for health reasons given to Israel as well. And then he tells him in verse... chapter 9 verse 6 whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image seems to be an echo of that all by itself it wouldn't stand alone very well but when you package it with all of the different times that Jesus referenced Genesis 1 through 11 it seems to be um, that he was doing that as well Luke chapter 9, we're out of context now, Luke chapter chapter 9, uh, verse 19. Um, We've kind of been going uh, chronologically, this one's different. When Jesus sent out the 72 in pairs before him, you remember that? Luke chapter 10, verse 19, records Jesus' words after the 72 had returned. So they'd gone out, they'd ministered, um, they had healed many, they had, they had, uh, uh, demons had been, uh, had been uh, freed up as well, they had been freed up from demons, the 72 had returned. Among those words, when he was re- speaking to these 72, he, seemed, he seems to reference a possibility of Genesis chapter 3 where God cursed the serpent after man's fall into sin. Luke chapter 10 verse 19 says this, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all powers of the enemy. Certainly the enemy's there. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I want to stop just for a second here. There are those in Christianity, underneath the umbrella of Christianity these days, that seem to do the very opposite of what Jesus says here. It seems like they boast in and they're proud of the powers that they have, which if they have them are spiritual gifts, and they're more pleased with those than the reality that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus said, that's what I want you to be rejoicing about, that you're forgiven and that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But here he gives them the authority to tread on serpents in Genesis. 3, God is cursing the serpent for his participation in the events of the fall, and he says this in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We realize both sides of this curse were ultimately fulfilled in the cross. Satan Satan's head being bruised, sin and evil, um, de- Satan's head being bruised, sin and evil uh, defeated, Jesus' heel being bruised, his perfect sacrifice cost him his life, which he would again gain at the resurrection. Possibly a reference to the Genesis 3 passage. I'm in John chapter 8 now. This is number 7. We have 8 of these. I'm in John chapter 8. Jesus spoke of the devil while exposing a false belief in him on the part of some Jews who believed. And I want to ask you to hold your, hold, your, hold your opinion of whether this was genuine belief in the Lord until we end, read the end of the passage. It says they believed in the Lord, but what was the level of their belief? Um, in John it says, 
verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. So he's taking it to a step further. It's more than just, I get to go to heaven. You're going you're to abide in my words. Then you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 37, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So that makes their belief questionable, doesn't it? I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And now this conversation goes really bad really quick. They answered him in verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of the works your father did. And they said to him, listen to this. They said to him, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Our mom isn't Mary who wasn't married and had a baby because she got pregnant. That's not us. That's not who we were. We have mothers and fathers. We weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and here I am. And I come not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear. Is it because you cannot bear, the, bear, bear to hear my words? You are of your father, the devil, you will, you, and your will is to do your father's desire. He is a murderer from when? From the beginning. And so he goes all the way back to Genesis again and talks about deception and lying and murdering. He's a, he's a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. So not only did Eve, not only was she tempted with deception and lies and the end result was that all of mankind, all of humankind would die spiritually Then we have in chapter 4 where Cain and Abel, that situation where one brother takes his other brother's life as well. Satan brought the temptation to Eve through lies and deception. The result was death entering the human race from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? Did he really say that? And sometimes we can read scripture and the thought comes around, does it really say that? If it says that, it says that. And that's what she said. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, a lie, you shall not surely die. That's who he is. That's what he did. And he showed it way back in the beginning. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, who was there in the beginning, draws all of these truths from the beginning throughout his ministry here on earth. In John, Jesus references Satan lying, which brought death from the beginning. And then the last one, and I save this one for last because it's a clear declaration. Mark 13. Open your Bible there if you would. Mark 13 and verse 19. We find Jesus speaking to his disciples. We're back at that end time uh, uh, communication that he was given to them. We find Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he mentions creation during this discussion with them about the end times. Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 13, verse 3 says this. 
Peter, James, and John, and Andrew had asked Jesus privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Among the things that Jesus said to them, this is what he included in verse 19. For in those days, which are still future, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. No question. Clear, clear declaration. <clears throat> has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. A clear statement from Jesus about God creating the world. You know what we don't find in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels? We don't find Jesus ever disagreeing with or denying anything that's found in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Nothing. Um, what we do find is we find him quoting specifically or referencing the things that were spoken, the truth that was spoken there. When Jesus, what Jesus did was interpret and understand Genesis 1 through 11. I want you to hear this clearly and plainly. That's what he did. And we're his followers. That's what we should do as well. We don't have the freedom to, to take great liberties in how we view something and whether it's allegorical or not. Are there things that are symbolic in Scripture? Yes, and they would be clearly stated as so. It would be very obvious. He believed and presented the events of Genesis 1 through 11 literally, not allegorically. That's not to say that there aren't symbolisms in Scripture, but we have the extreme responsibility of rightly dividing the word of truth. We don't get the freedom to, 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 to make up what it is that we think should be uh, an illustration. He sets an, an exceptional example for us to follow on how we should approach God's word. The Genesis account of creation and the fall and the flood and the repopulation of the earth aren't allegorical stories to convey some mystical idea of where we came from and why there's evil and bad things in the world. It's to be quoted literally the way Jesus approached it as well. It's God's inspired truth of his creation, man's willful sinfulness, a real flood, the repopulation of the earth, and the other truths that we find there. When we read and understand Colossians 1, and I want to read it again, what we read before the Lord's Supper, we would expect exactly what we find in the Gospels, the way Jesus treated the Genesis account. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the highest ranking over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in the heavens, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things that he may have the preeminence. He gets to be the preeminent one, the first one. Of course Jesus would agree with the creation account. He was there. He was the one who created it. And he draws his lessons during his earthly ministry from there many, many times. Let me speak a word, if I could, about the place of biblical science. And I say biblical science because there's science out there that's not biblical. And then there's science out there that is biblical. We are blessed. I want you to hear me say this. We are blessed to have people and ministries like Ken Ham. And maybe you'll recognize some of these names, maybe you won't. Dwayne Gish, Henry Morris, 
Institute for Creation Research, uh, Creation Research Society, Creation Museum, and many, many other individuals and organizations. God has raised people up in our world at our time and organize, organizations that do a fantastic job of declaring biblical truth and light in a dark, dark world that seeks to explain God away. But I want you to hear this. The reason we believe in the Genesis account isn't because of Creation Science Museum and Morris and Gish and Ken Ham. The reason we believe it is because Jesus believed it. We're followers of Jesus. These guys compliment, and well, they should, and they do a fantastic job, and God has raised them up, and we're thankful for them. But the reason we follow and believe the Genesis account is because Jesus followed and believed the Genesis account. There were times in our world that you didn't have Creation Science Museum and Gish and Morris and different people that we have in our day and time. Were they free from uh, assuming or were they free from believing the Genesis account? Of course they weren't. There are, there are groups in our world today. I'm thinking of, of um, Brody Pav. Brody is Bron Pav's brother, and he ministers to tri a tribe over in Papua New Guinea. This tribe over in Papua New Guinea doesn't even have their own written language. Of course they don't have access to things like the Creation Science Museum and some of the things that we have. Are they free from believing that God created Genesis chapter 1, the whole Genesis creation story of Genesis 1 through 11? Of course they're not. The reason we can believe it is because Jesus believed it. That is our primary, that is our primary motivation. A second good motivation that is equal to it is because it's declared in the word of God. We we're thankful for these organizations and these individuals that battle darkness in a, in a world, um, but, but they're not the reason that I believe that God created. I believe God created because, it's, because it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus gave reference to it or cited it many different times in his earthly ministry as well. So we're thankful for those individuals and those organizations as well. But the primary reason that we would believe um, would be Jesus believed. Uh, and for that reason, he quoted and referenced it. And then the word of God contains it as well. I want to finish with this. No, I don't want to finish. I want to almost finish with this. Hebrews chapter 11. Open your Bible there if you would. Hebrews chapter 11. I say that about biblical science because what I see in our day is that sometimes the church can draw their foundation to what isn't a foundation. The foundation is our Lord and the Word of God. And these ministries support our Lord and the Word of God. But Hebrews chapter 11 says this, Now faith is the assurance, verse 1, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I don't believe that God created the world because Creation Science Museum is able to logically show me how it was created. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says that it's by faith that we believe that God created um, so, that, so that what is seen was made out of things that are visible. Those who live before us, as well as those outside of the reach of ministries like those biblical science groups that I mentioned, um, uh, they still have the responsibility, as do you and I, of believing the beginning in the beginning God created. So let's go way back to where, where we started this morning, and we'll end with this. I'm in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Verse 8, John the Baptist was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people, Israel, didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The question for you and I this morning is, have I been born of God? Not am I religious, not am I here every week, not am I here two or three weeks a month. Have I been born of God? And that's what John declares as a significant issue. It's what Jesus declared during his earthly ministry as a significant issue as well. Have you been born of God? And, and, I, and I trust and hope that you have. We've certainly been exposed to the truth that Jesus came, God in the flesh, that he lived a sinless life, was sacrificed on the cross for my sin, that I might have the forgiveness of God and redemption in him. And the only way that that happens is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so the question that I wanted to, to end with this morning isn't one about creation. It's one about the new creation that God wants to create in each one of us. And that's a spiritual entity, Jerry, a spiritually born again individual. And I'm thankful that that's happened to me. And, and I have confidence, not arrogance that it has, the confidence that comes from God's word. And because of that, I'm able to share that with you. And you can share that with others as well if you have that confidence. But it really comes down to that question. Have you been born of God? Uh, and, and I hope if you wonder that you don't just let that thought flitter away into insignificance. It is absolutely critical. Critical. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. Jesus, we thank you for the example that, you give, that you've given us in, in how you treated the creation account, that you considered them very literal events. You were there. You would know. And we ask that you would through this study that of Genesis 1 through 11, through these messages, that you would give us a confidence that you are creator God, and all of our world seeks to go against you because of the darkness that they are in, and they don't, un- and they don't understand or comprehend the light. So, Father, allow us to be the light uh, to those that don't know you, but I pray that this morning everyone in this place would consider the question, have I been born of God? And if we have, may we rejoice. If we haven't, may we be troubled until we get to the place of the cross and recognize Jesus died for and insert our name right there. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.